morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 14. And the last time we uh, talked about the first kind of stage or the first out of a four-part series. It's a long chapter, and the title is Ministry the Lord's Way. Again, people ask questions. A lot of churches do things a lot of different ways. What does it all mean? Are there any guidelines? And the answer is yes. If you look at Matthew 10, if you look at Luke 10, if you look at Mark 6, you can see that Jesus had a certain way that he did ministry and sent his disciples out. As a matter of fact, we, um, towards the end of the message, I kind of gave nine or ten points of discipleship because, you know, discipleship, you see it every day. A lot of you in your jobs, you know, you go to work and there's training, maybe there's an apprenticeship program, that's discipleship. So we use discipleship even in the secular world, and it's something that Jesus really perfected, uh, being the Son of God, of course. Uh, we do have some handouts, again, at the info table about what to expect in discipleship. Many of you know Pastor Luis and Calvary Carney. He has an ongoing discipleship program, and there's always a percentage that wash out. Um, it's just the way it is. You know, They washed out in Jesus' day. People come in. They have a preconceived idea of what it is. And then when it gets tough, they decide, they make a choice, and, and some people bail out. So hopefully the handout will help to help us to understand what it's all about before even jumping into it and certainly to pray about it. Uh, today we're going to talk about King Herod, which is unusual. So we have this thing about the Lord doing ministry, and then King Herod, who's a historical figure, I'm going to use secular history to back up what the scripture is saying, and it's kind of funny, when I looked at Herod in the secular sources, they all mention the Bible. They couldn't help but mention the Bible because they're intertwined, right? The Bible is history, but it's also God's inspired word. So Herod, you might say, well, what is he doing in the middle of, because next Sunday we're going to talk about feeding the 5,000 and, and Peter walking on the water when Jesus comes to him. You know, what does this all mean? And I think the, the answer is that ministry now starts to turn in the life of Jesus Christ. You know, it was very exciting in the, in the beginning. A lot of people came out to see what was going on. Now the, the authorities, the government is involved. They're paying attention to what's going on. Satan is really ramping up the opposition. So we're going to talk about King Herod. Uh, and then we're going to go back to the feeding of the 5,000. But I would say this this morning, that how does it apply to us? Well, listen, somebody here might be a CEO of a company. You might be a president of an organization. You might be the top in your field. You may have complete autonomy in what you do. And be careful of that power. Unchecked power, how you can wield however you want. I mean, you see it in our politicians, especially in the federal government. They act as if the rest of the world doesn't exist, the rest of the country that they're supposed to be serving seems to have gotten lost. But I think through the life of Herod, we can see this this character study of a person who had total autonomy, but unfortunately the demise that happened to them in the end. Now, many of us may not fit into those roles, but certainly as we start to be elevated in a sense, we really have to keep our pride in check and make sure we understand that any elevation ultimately comes from God and how to learn how to handle that elevation. Certainly the maximum absolute power corrupts absolutely is going to apply here. So starting with verse 14, it says, Now King Herod heard of him, meaning Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Remember, Herod killed John the Baptist. So he's getting a little paranoid here. Others said, It is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. 
But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So Mark gives an aftermath first, the death of John the Baptist. And then he goes into Herod's consequential fear and regret, reaggravated by John the Baptist's similar, or similar ministry to Jesus. Remember, Herod didn't know Jesus. He had familiarity and contact with John the Baptist. But there was incredible similarities in their work. Now, history tells us that this Herod is Herod Antipas. And these were a line of, again, autonomous rulers. However, albeit under the power of the Roman government, under the emperors. But Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great, who was another brutal ruler. You know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. And he hears of, you know, Herod Antipas hears of the Lord Jesus's ministry and thinks, so this must be John reincarnated. Again, he's got all these weird ideas. But let me say this, that even when we're persecuted, when somebody identifies us with the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a compliment. You could be going through something so difficult at your job or during the holidays with your family members, and they associate you with Jesus, living a good life, a similar ministry, the words, the words of comfort come out of your mouth, the scriptures roll off your tongue. That's compliment. Well, John, John lost his life, but he's spending eternity in heaven. I, I'll submit to you that where John the Baptist has been since this happened, these 2,000 or so years, uh, imagine the, the enjoyment that he's experiencing right now compared to the little speck and the drop in the bucket of his life on earth. So something's changing. There's an undercurrent of persecution. Things are becoming more difficult in ministry, and that's very interesting. Because what happens when American Christians start to be persecuted like our brothers and sisters overseas? How is that going to change us? How is that going to change our devotion? I mean, almost every Sunday I read about just a small fraction of the entire rest of the world of Christians who are being persecuted just because they're Christians. They didn't do anything wrong. It's just illegal. Well, some may end up as in John 6. When I covered the, and a lot of people don't know that this is even in here, John 6, uh, verse 66, right? 666, where Jesus starts to step up his teachings, and a lot of Jesus' disciples walk away and follow him no more. Jesus had probably well over 100 disciples. A lot of people don't know that. And in the end, he was really left with his 12. Is that a fault of Jesus Christ? Did he not do discipleship right? Of course not. It's a condition of the human heart. Also, Psalm 44, my son and I were doing devotions. He likes the Psalms, and I'm reading the Psalm. I haven't read it in a while, and it just talks about, the psalmist talks about how the, at that point, God's people were trying to do the right thing, and they were, and they were still losing battles, and they were still being persecuted, and, and this was a conundrum for the psalmist. And I enjoyed that because it's not like the prosperity gospel teaches. We can be doing all the right things and still become persecuted, hence the handouts in, in, the, in the lobby. But what do we find out? That Herod is haunted by what he did. Even the ungodly at times are haunted by their thoughts. Right? And they may have different reactions to those thoughts. They may have still have a little bit of a conscience left that tells them this is wrong. So here are the choices. Number one, repent and be saved. Or two, maybe some are experiencing this this morning. Keep stuffing it. You hear the truth, you hear the word, 
keep pushing it down. You keep putting it into a, compartmentalize it to a point of, of the mind that you don't want to deal with it right now. Keep fighting it. You know it's the truth, but you keep rejecting it. And then you end up like Pharaoh, who eventually the Lord hardened. And also like Herod. And we'll talk about his demise a little later in the, uh, in the teaching. Now, this is important as well. At the other end of the spectrum, you can have those that come to Christ and are very tender-hearted. And in, in their end of the spectrum, they carry a lot of baggage to the cross, but they don't leave it at the cross. They're so overcome with some of the baggage that they've carried over the years that they can't forgive themselves. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you. I, I say this. How can you condemn yourself for something that God has forgiven you of? Think about that for a moment. Jesus paid any of your sins that you guys have dealt with, that I dealt with. You know, you, you give it up to the Lord. Jesus already took care of it at the cross. So how can we continue to... Con- you might be in a situation right now where you just feel unworthy. Maybe you, you're, you're in church this morning, but you haven't come in a long time because you're just living in condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ. We're not always going to be walking on air spiritually. We're going to have those difficult times. So just, I want to encourage you, give it to God. Let him take it. Leave the baggage at the cross. However, in in Herod's instance, he didn't repent, and we'll talk about that. Verse 17, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he, meaning Herod Antipas, married her. For John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, meaning because she did not have the power to do that. So let's look at this in stages. Let's look at this in how the Lord was trying to get Herod's attention because he loved Herod too. He died for Herod's sins as well. But he may also be trying to get our attention. So let's look at some of these steps that apply to Herod and also may apply to some listening this morning. Number one, verses 17 through 19, the conviction. What's the conviction? Not like you're convicted of murder, but in in a biblical sense, to be convicted is the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you're doing something wrong. You know, God is telling you, you really shouldn't do that. And we, we had a whole discussion several years back about the conscience and the mind and where different thoughts come from and how to deal with it and execute the right thought with your will. However, let's look at this for a minute, the conviction. Some say, make it stop. In Herod and Herodias' case, they use violence and incarceration to make it stop. Some people use substance abuse. Some people use other things. So Herod Antipas here is married to, he married a woman prior to Herodias. He divorces her so he could have Herodias, who's the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip. Again, this is all secular history. Now, this must have made for interesting family get-togethers, to say the least. <laughs> so, you know, it's, talk about, you think you got problems in your family? Let me tell you something. The Herods had real problems in their family. And Herod the Great had killed several of his sons and two of his wives, and the expression went around saying, and this was a true expression, it was safer to be Herod's pig than a family member. Because he was just, and then he, he felt sad after he killed them just demented, just inspired, satanic. I mean, this is, so I just want to encourage you, if you're going through family troubles, look at the Herods and you'll feel much better. (laughs) But the point is, the first step is the conviction. What do we do when the Lord convicts us and shows us something? It's not, we're not to be drowned in, in sorrow, but we're supposed to act on that conviction, to do something with it. 
verse 20. For Herod feared John. Now he's got the power to lock him up, but he feared him, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Boy, this is bizarre. This whole story is bizarre. But again, it's, it's backed up with, with history. The second thing that we looked at is the, the attraction to the truth. Herod was a very double-minded man, but there was part of him that longed to talk to John. In my mind, because I have a very active imagination, I can just picture Herod at 2 o'clock in the morning putting on a robe and a cloak and going down to the cell area and taking the cloak off and saying to the guard, it's me, don't say anything or I'll kill you. Put the cloak back on. He goes to see John the Baptist and they're talking through the bars. Right? I mean, this is, this is not uncommon. Missionaries in communist lands who have to toe the line for the communist party secretly want to speak to these missionaries about this Jesus that's doing all these wonderful things. Nick at night, remember Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night, right? He, he didn't want to do it in the daylight where everybody could see him breaking ranks from the rest of the Pharisees. This happens, and this will happen with us too. This attraction to the truth, which can happen simultaneously with conviction. So Herod feared John, but Herodias hated John. And I believe that John just kept preaching to Herod because he was hoping to convert him to the truth. Verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. So the third part in this is the compromise. Now, we don't always have to take the compromise. We can just repent and and escape the rest of the nonsense that Herod is dealing with. But the third part is the compromise. This was fueled by alcohol, lust, and pride, which was a deadly combination. And this occurs if repentance does not win out. You have to understand this morning, if you don't know the Lord, there is a battle for your soul. Satan knows you're here sitting in this pew hearing the word of God. And he's going to try really hard to keep you from allowing the word to change you in the inside. There is a real battle. I've seen some movies that have done it really well where a person can actually see into the spiritual realm. And it's just they look around and it's totally different. There's angels and demons doing battle, some tugging at the hearts of people to try to steal their souls. So this is what's going on. Now, let me just say this, that young girls in that culture didn't dance before men. We're reading into it a little bit, but taking this with history, this was a lascivious dance. It was a sensual dance to get the king's attention. And it must have been some show for, get the, for the king to promise her half of his kingdom. And you've got to ask yourself, what type of parent would allow their child to do something like this. Well, it happens today as well. And I tell you, even on a lesser scale, some parents live vicariously through their children. And some Christian parents do that as well. And they don't want to talk about it because it's a sacred idol to them. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Train up a child in the way he or they should go, not the way we want them to go as parents. And when they get older, they will not depart from it. There is a way that God has for every child, including my son. I don't want my son, well, (laughs) definitely not the bad parts. I don't want him to be like me. I want him to be who God has made him, unique and special. And he doesn't have to be like me. 
So I know I'm getting off the topic a little bit, but this is important because I've seen it. You know, we have to train up our child in the right ways, be a good example, try to not be uh, hypocrites as much as possible, but to see what way God has them go. Now, certainly we don't want them to go down the wide path of destruction, but it really isn't us for determine every little piece of our child's future. You know, I ask my son, what do you want to do when you get older? Well, he actually just wants to stay home and not work and have mom and dad take care of him. <laughs> and I can't say that I blame him. But I'm trying to, as he gets older, trying to ask him more and more what he likes to do, what his interests are, what he, you know, and kind of throw some suggestions at him. You know, and, and prayerfully, I, I, I'm, I support my son and wherever he goes with that. But we started with compromise. Compromise will always lead to instability. You know, if we've lived long enough, we've all compromised in some fashion. And you, it's hard to look in the mirror when we compromise. Because we, we, part of us wants to retain the things of God and part of us wants to do things to make a path easy for ourselves. So we don't have to make the hard choices and that's not a good thing. Verse 24. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. I say that with emphasis. Immediately she came in with haste to the king, asked and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrow, sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. The fourth point. The inability to stop a tragedy due to pride. Be careful of open-ended statements. Whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. I bet he didn't see that one coming out of left field. Now remember, this is also Herod's birthday. It probably went down as the worst birthday party he ever had. But you have to wonder what type of relationship Herod had with Herodias. I mean, it must have been completely sensual or fleshly or they were mutual vipers that could only live with each other and couldn't have anybody else. You have a man who puts John in prison to shut him up and probably to shut his wife up as well. And a wife who devised a deceptive scheme to undermine her husband's desire to keep, her, to keep John the Baptist alive. Now, I looked through some interesting things on this, and there's Jerome the historian. I believe he was the third century. He said that uh, it's been written in, outside of Scripture that when the head of John the Baptist was brought, that Herodias took a sharp object pulled his tongue out and took the object and thrust it through his tongue. No, no respect for the dead, no respect for the greatest prophet that was ever born among women. But that was symbolic of shutting his mouth permanently so she could do what she wants. God help us if that's our idea of the life that we want to be in. God help us if we reject those that lovingly tell us this is not the right path to go on. God help us if that's our attitude towards getting what we want at any cost. We can become so hyper-focused on things, and, and they can be tragic for us and tragic for our spiritual lives. So this is, again, a bizarre thing, but it really makes perfect sense. And I'm just going to um, reference another scripture in Revelation 11. You know, you got this weird celebration of the death of this man, this death of this innocent man, by the way. In Revelation 11, there's two prophets of God. Now, this is, our near, this is our future. New Jersey, 2014, this is our future. Revelation speaks a lot about what's going to happen 
after where we are at some point. It could be next year, it could be 10 years, we don't know. But in Jerusalem, God sends two prophets to you know, preach the truth, and the people um, get, get together and they, and they kill them in the streets. And they leave their dead bodies in the streets while the whole world watches and celebrates and they give gifts to each other. Again, destroy, shut their mouths at all costs. Now, God eventually resurrects his prophets and then brings them back to heaven, but he sends them there for a purpose. And brothers and sisters, if we're doing this without hypocrisy and we're you know, telling people things or we're you know, trying to help somebody that we really care about and love and guiding them in a certain way, well, may, they might not kill us, but we certainly may get a reaction to this. You know, the world, the world system does not want to hear about conviction. It doesn't want to hear that it's doing something wrong. It doesn't want to hear that there's only one way to heaven. It wants to do what it wants to do. And it's completely poised against God. Verse 29. And when his disciples, meaning uh, John the Baptist, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So the fifth point is... Repentance is far better than remorse. Remember Judas? He was remorseful, but he wasn't really repentant. Remorse is kind of halfway. And I see this all the time. It's the emotionalism. You know, oh, the crocodile tears. Oh, I'm, I'm so convicted. I'm so blah, blah, blah. And two days later, they're back doing the same thing. Repentance is a true change of heart. It's a true change of direction. You know, I've been remorseful before, oh, just the, the emotion. Listen, I'm Italian. I can be dramatic, okay? The whole drama of it. But there's really a, a sharp dichotomy between being remorseful and being repentant, right? Repentant, there's actions that go with it to change. So Herod is remorseful. You know, he didn't leave John's body in a field with the head over here so the animals could eat it apart and, and pick them clean. He was nice. He got a, he, you know, John the Baptist's disciples come and says, oh, you can take the body, give it a proper burial. But repentance would have been stopping the train wreck from happening, even if it meant losing face in front of his guests. Whoa, whoa, I didn't, that just, you know. Or even afterwards, seeking John's disciples and saying, you know, I, I used to listen to him in prison. What I did was a horrible thing. Will you guys forgive me? Will God forgive me? Tell me more about what he preached. You know, I love to listen to him, and now I took his life, and I can't hear it anymore. Please tell me, you know, can I, can, can I become one of your disciples? Not according to history. That didn't happen. But that's, that's repentance. So I just want to make a few points, because we're pretty much done with the Scripture part of it. I want to make a few points based on Herod's life that may be, um, may be able to help us in some, some respect. Do you ever wonder why the religious leaders didn't petition Herod's court to stop John the Baptist from being killed? The answer is that the religious leaders were bedfellows with the political system. They didn't like him either. You know why? Because he exposed religious hypocrisy. And I'll tell you this, that a person who lives a righteous life that's not a hypocrite, when, when they expose things, um, they're the most hated person on the planet. So nobody liked John. Uh, in the end, and certainly nobody came to Jesus' aid at the end either. They just wanted to shut them up. Second point is that when we see what happens to John the Baptist, and we know what history says about Jesus and his disciples, do we have any right to expect a fairy tale ending in our own temporal lives? Are we that special that we are better than Jesus or the disciples? Are we not supposed to go through trials? This is what the prosperity gospel does. It feeds 
on that root of self-preservation, and it feeds it, and it feeds it. And basically it says, whenever there's trials that come, your character does not have to be grown, because what's going to happen is God's going to save the day for you. And if he doesn't save the day, you can save the day, because he always wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That's not reflected in Scripture. You realize in Hebrews 11.35, it's one verse, that in the same verse, it says that women had their dead raised to life, a victory in the temporal realm. But it also said, but others accepting death for a better resurrection. Same verse. Some people had temporal victory. Some people did not. But both of them had spiritual victory, that better resurrection, right? So to let go of everything that we have for the sake of where God will take us. That's pretty impressive. I would say this, be careful of trying to straddle God and the world that you think is doing so much for you because you'll eventually compromise. Third point, you have this interesting relationship between Herod and Herodias. She had the hatred and he had the power to carry out her hateful thoughts and wishes. We have to be careful who we yoke ourselves to. Now, Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, First and Second Corinthians, he says, when you get married, you know, if you're a believer, you've got to be yoked to a believer. You know, if you're a believer, you can't be yoked to an unbeliever. And back in those days, and you still see it today in some older farms, they had this, uh, looks like a lowercase m. It was a wooden yoke, and the animal, each animal would be put, it would be put over the animal's shoulders. And they would fasten both animals in, and in the center would be a rod or some type of uh, heavy strap, and it would be attached to uh, a plow or some type of farm implement. Now, what you would do is you would take two animals that were similar size, similar strength, similar age, right? Maybe, you know, and, and what you would do is you put them together so that they could work in harmony and have a synergistic effect to do a better job in plowing the fields. However, if you had one animal that was large, energetic, and, uh, you know, strong, and you had a little animal that was neither, you would have this constant twisting of the yoke, and nothing would get done. The plow would zigzag over the field if it even did anything, and you'd, you'd be doing a better job just having one of the animals. I love the illustrations in the scripture. When we're married, we need to yoke ourselves with like-minded people. If you have a fire for the Lord, then find somebody who has something similar. If one of you, if you get married and one of you is saved and the other one still isn't, then just pray for that person to be saved and be a good example to them. Why am I saying this all? Because it's not just marriage. Sometimes we yoke ourselves in our professional lives. We yoke ourselves in our peer groups. We yoke ourselves to others, even in the church. And what happens is if they're one of those types of person that is not on fire for the Lord, or they mock, or whatever, what have you, they will drag you down. And your work for the Lord will not get done. And I've seen it in the church. God has a plan for your life, and you yoke yourself to another person who doesn't care. And they don't share the same things that you do. And when they go down, they drag you down with them. It's a very, very interesting concept, and it's a, an important one for us to understand. The fourth point is that John the Baptist was the voice of conviction to Herod, and Herod eventually has him killed. Herod was a double-minded man. He flip-flopped when he was with his wife. Yeah, you know, you're right. We should do something about him talking about us like that. When he's with John, he said, oh, tell me more about this scripture. Tell me more about this God that you serve. 
And he would just constantly go back and forth, and eventually he was put in a position where he had to take the life of John the Baptist. Imagine him giving that order. Believers, we become unstable in all our ways when we're double-minded. James tells us that. There's sometimes I, I deal with believers and they're frustrated and they're mad at God and maybe they're mad at their church or their pastor, but what they're not looking at is themselves. We have to be single-focused. We have to have a, a single goal. We wouldn't do that in our professional lives, would we? We have one goal here and one goal that's opposite, and we're going in two directions, we get fired. Why would we do that in our spiritual lives? Herod had different goals and different focuses, and he kept flip-flopping. That's called being double-minded. And that will make us unstable. The Bible is very clear about that. And the last point, Herod made a triple fatal mistake. Number one, you can only say that he probably was lusting after his wife's daughter, so that's one problem. He had a foolish, evil oath that was born out of lust and drunkenness. And three, he makes good on his evil oath. Now you have to wonder, what type of friends and guests did Herod have at the party? Did anybody love Herod enough to just kind of scoot over to him and say, Psst, King, bad idea. Change the channel. Change the subject. You don't have to go through with this. You know, we'll support you. Or did they all gin him up in their drunkenness and maybe they, they ramped it up so he felt he had his back up was against the wall? You know, we have to ask ourselves, and this goes back to yoking again, what type of friends do we have? Right? Do they encourage us maybe to, to drink too much and then when we've had too much instead of taking the car keys they challenge us to try to defy death and the police checkpoints and get get to home base that's not a friend do they help you engage in things that they know will hurt you but they do it just for fun listen i lived on both sides of the cross i lived that life and you know what i treasure my friends who i have today because i know they're always looking out for me and if they rebuke me i know it's for my own good Sad to say, I might have been in the life before Christ. I might have been like one of those friends, and I wasn't a good friend either. Sometimes it's time to evaluate our relationships and who's around us. You know, make some hard decisions. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not absolving Herod of, of his sin and what he did. Here's the rest of the story according to history. Herod Agrippa who was Herod Antipas's nephew, convinces the newly coronated uh, emperor, Roman emperor Caligula. If you know anything about Caligula, he was brutal. He was another sicko. Again, you give these guys unchecked power, and what do they do? Unfortunately, again, you see that in the federal level. Give these guys and gals unchecked power, and they're more interested in their, their PACs and their, you know, their special interest groups that are they're lining their pockets and their futures and... and positions when they get out of office. This is why I don't know why we keep voting in the same people and both parties. They're, you know, it's a problem, but let me get off of politics for a minute. So uh, Caligula is, is newly coronated. Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa is somewhat friendly to him, and, he, and he, he puts a bug in his ear that his uncle, right, Herod Antipas, is looking to conspire against him. So there's a few turns of events, and what happens is Caligula has... Antipas and Herodias deposed and sent to lions where they both die a miserable death. So was it all worth it? Did he even get anything from the world? You know, we have to be careful of swimming with the sharks. Because when we swim with the sharks to get what we want, sometimes the shark will take a nice bite out of us. They don't care. 
They're not our friends. This came from Herod's own family, his nephew. He was just as ambitious as his uncle, and he caused his demise. Some sell their souls for power, money, celebrity, or deep needs misdirected from God to other people. But what does it all mean in the end? What are we holding on to, brothers and sisters? What idol? You know, none of us, I'm sure, in this room are like Herod uh, Antipas, but it would be a shame if we didn't make an application for our own lives. What are we clutching on to that's, that's like quicksand through our fingers? There was a hymn that Pastor Paul plays on Sunday mornings, and one of the lines is, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that's the truth. And certainly this is emblematic in the life of Herod Antipas. What do we want to be our, what, do, what do we want our legacy to be like? You know, I, I said from um, in the beginning in prayer that my dad passed away on Friday. And I'm doing his eulogy and the message and stuff. And, you know, I, I have to look at my dad's life. He left a legacy too. Some of it was good. Some of it was not so good. We're all going to be in that situation. Death waits for no man and no woman. And before we go outside and enjoy this beautiful day, and I know you wish I don't ramble on too much so you can really enjoy the Sunday afternoon, really think about this. Because these days are fleeting. Before you know, the winter will come back and we'll be scooped up in the house and complaining about the snow. That's life. But one day we will die. And we will stand before a holy and righteous and loving God What will our legacy be if we were to die today? This should really sober us up to look at this. I know in my personal life, I'm reevaluating a lot of my relationships. So, as we go out today, I just pray that we would maybe take some of these points to heart and uh, maybe make some fine-tuning and in prayer, see what the Lord will have us change. Let's pray.